0: Hello and welcome to Discord, a podcast to explore the intersection between music and theatre. I'm Adam Lenson, and week by week I will be trying to figure out the conundrum that is musical theatre. Welcome to episode 12. Discord.
1: And people just got sick of the fact that musical theatre has been left behind uh, post- the sort of 1980s, early 90s
0: boom, uh,
1: where we were thinking, oh, we can do this as well as America, but it was a very, it was always such a tiny, tiny group that were of creatives that were driving that.
0: This week on Discord, we're zooming out to investigate the territory and geography of musical theatre in Britain. As a British practitioner myself, I'm very involved and invested in the changing territory of musical theatre as we develop new work and diversify the types of artists and mediums that contribute to the future of the art form, I thought it was important to look at the overview. During the episodes of Discord that we've done so far, we've spoken to theatre makers and deconstructed specific pieces. We've looked at locations on the map of musical theatre, but what is happening across the territory? In an effort to describe the landscape of British musical theatre, and in order to further analyse it myself, I spoke with James Hadley, Executive Director of the Musical Theatre Network. MTN was created in 2005 to champion the development of new musical theatre writing and provide resources to those working in the field in Britain. James works to identify gaps and barriers in the sector and hopes to address those needs directly and build connections on a national level. He has noticed a shift in the spectrum of activity and the capacity of people who want to work in the art form. In March 2016, MTN, along with MMD, led the first B.E.A.M. Festival, a festival designed to bring together people from all facets of the industry, artistic directors, producers, writers, directors, musicians and actors to share and support new work in various stages of development. In a jam-packed discussion, James and I debated back and forward where musical theatre is in Britain today and where it might be headed.
1: There is a definite evolution going on and people are starting to use the term sort of renaissance and that's very nice if we work towards genuinely earning that, that term of a renaissance of British musical theatre.
0: I asked James to start by outlining what he thought were the contributing factors in bringing about this change in the modern perception of British musical theatre.
1: It's partly to do with uh, the fact that there's the critical mass of people that are wanting to address or work in this art form uh, to a degree that there hasn't been for quite a while, that for a long, long time there was just this sort of cultural shrug around it being the provision of the West End. Uh, about it being a commercial art form.
0: I think that's absolutely true that Britain has very much seen musical theatre as only a commercial art form which means it can only be seen as something that belongs in big West End theatres and as such that leads to people perceiving musicals as only being able to be big, bold, accessible and entertaining. So rather than in other mediums such as Films, plays, and books, which have a full and rich spectrum of work of differing styles, complexity, and tone. Musicals have been thought of as work that is made by and for the West End. There are only 40 theatres in the West End, so it goes without saying that it's a very restricted pool for an entire genre or medium to belong to. In addition to that, the boom of British musical theatre of the 70s and 80s was made up of a very, very small pool of creatives rather than entire community. As such, we got used to expecting a very slim type of work, as meaning musical theatre. And basically, that was the musical theatre of Andrew Lloyd Webber, And the shows produced by Cameron Mackintosh.
1: You know, some history books kind of say, oh, there's nothing going on. We know that people have been making new British musicals continually, it's just been that they haven't been of a particular profile or uh, generally. Um, But I think what's different is the fact that we've got almost a full spectrum of activity happening now.
0: So, after 20 years, rather than just a West End slice, what James observes that we're seeing now is a full spectrum finally, of musical theatre. Uh,
1: and it is about more than just individual writers. I think what we're seeing is that we're getting more joined up groupings of people. And we know that's the key thing is the critical mass of a group of artists uh, or several groups of artists so that people have the conversations and the, there's a, a level of debate whereby it's not just one type of work being done, or one style, you're actually getting different factions and different approaches. And I think that's something that has been so, not even ghettoised, I think it's just an individual project would happen where someone would make a musical, and then someone would write a musical over there, but they wouldn't be joined together, there wasn't enough of them happening.
0: They weren't brought together. So it seems that the way musical theatre was coded in Britain, in the 80s especially, was a something done by very few people that was a very distinct and specific style and that took place in and only in the West End. And what's starting to happen now is we're shaking off that specificity and that work is being seen across a broader spectrum of types and tones and styles and in a broader range of theatrical contexts. So it's not just being seen in the West End, it's being seen outside the West End too. And so I think the thing James is saying that we need to hang on to is that musical theatre should aspire to a full spectrum of tone and also a critical mass of practitioners, because that critical mass of practitioners become finally a community. And that community has the ability to forge forward and create work that is diverse and of a high quality if that community listens to one another and to the tone of theatre in Britain.
1: There is something about when you have a hub where there are enough artists talking together in a cafe or something that, a new artistic evolution can happen. It almost ever happens in cities because you need that level of debate where, yeah, you've got something that people are pushing against because they go, oh, we don't want to be like that theater down the road. We want to do something that's rebellious. If you've only got one theater company in a city, then you can't push against. You can only have one generation against another or something like that. Um, but I think that absolutely that's, that's key, that the, the fact that we are seeing people want to change things based on pushing against what's come before or pushing against the way that musical theatre has been positioned. I
0: think musical theatre has been positioned or assumed or thought of as a certain thing, whereas, once again, films, plays, books are rarely thought of as just one thing. And I think finally we're breaking out of those presumptions of what musical theatre is in this country.
1: But it's really early days. It's one of the big frustrations, I think, that we're still within the people that are massively musical theatre engaged. There are still huge debates about what musical theatre is. You know, America is so much further ahead in terms of where they're at with those debates because sort of in their vocabulary already, it feels like here we're, we're... we're playing a very long game of catch-up, but the exciting thing is that we've got past the first few hurdles that in the past I think people would always be playing catch-up and getting a bit tired because it would only get so far and then they'd have to go back to the start again. But it feels like there's a more of a momentum from those between those various conversations nowadays rather than in the past it being going back over the same territory again and again. Uh, so I think that we're able to have the conversations then to take a step forward now in a way that maybe we weren't before.
0: And I would agree that there is momentum in the British musical theatre scene at the moment. And in fact, that's one of the reasons I started this podcast, was because seeing that growing momentum and seeing the frustration that there is in many of the people that are part of that change in momentum, I wanted to make sure that there was a forum that was public for detailed and caring conversations about what musical theatre is, how it works, what it means and what it could hope to be. Another thing that's been happening over the last few years is the opening up of revenue streams other than commercial investment to help support musical theatre and these help to support musicals of a different type to those created typically by West End producing models.
1: The fact that the Arts Council in this country was starting to put more investment into new musicals and was saying we don't see it as just being a commercial provision, there was something about the message that gave, that gave a bit of hope for people thinking oh maybe I could actually get a bit of funding.
0: The Arts Council are a British governmental organisation that allocates taxpayer money to artistic endeavours including theatre. It's grant money that doesn't need to be repaid and as such can be used for riskier and less obviously commercial work to ensure that it gets developed and reaches audience who otherwise wouldn't get to see that sort of theater.
1: Previously, people just knew it was so expensive and unless you were operating in a commercial model, it just felt it was too far away from reality for a lot of people to even want to go there. So I think you needed to have that promise of subsidy, of funding, for people to to want to even dip their toe in the waters of that area.
0: Typically, government subsidies were kept away from musical theatre because it was believed that musical theatre was a predominantly commercial art form capable of taking care of itself financially. So there was this chicken and egg situation by which musical theatre looked like it could support itself, so it didn't require money, but the sort of work that would help redefine what musicals could be weren't able to support themselves. James and I then went on to discuss the fact that plays can often have their tone or style described by talking about the work of other writers. So you can say that a play is Pinteresque or Kafkaesque, for example. But in musical theatre, we rarely say that something is Bernsteinesque or Sondheimesque, and that actually we don't necessarily have enough knowledge of the various different tones and styles of writing in musical theatre in order to be able to decode it, deconstruct it and describe what it really is. And that perhaps means that musical theatre is a less well-interrogated art form and harder to define and harder to describe. When we get to
1: the stage where people are like, oh, it's like Lacusa meets Songtime Beats. And we did this a few times with people pitching shows within funding applications. Often we'll have a meeting at the Arts Council when I was there and we would talk about what kind of show they're making. I remember people really, so often people would really struggle when it comes to a musical to be able to drill down beyond saying it's a musical. It used to be that the anomaly was, oh, you're writing a musical. Wow, that's different to writing a play. Whereas now we're saying, well, the Arts Council is now funding a whole range of different musical theatre projects, so just being a musical isn't going to make it stand out within a funding panel that's looking at 30 applications. There might well, often there would be five musical theatre applications competing with each other, so it was no longer the one application. And this, in a way, reflects that sense of no longer just being the anomaly. So instead, people are able to have those conversations and go, well, whereas that musical is a sort of commercial West End, broadway influence sort of sounding piece... Uh, This is different, but people still don't quite have the vocabulary, apart from a few cases where they can say it's in this territory. It feels like it's still baby steps in terms of people sort of citing something on a landscape of musical theatre or a spectrum.
0: And I agree with James because very often people are trying to write musicals while knowing almost nothing about musicals. And interestingly, I'm not saying that people need to know about the past of musical theatre so that they can just copy it. But I think it's worth knowing the landscape in which you're writing into, because then you've got something to react against.
1: I'm always sort of feeling frustrated that it's taking so slow for musical theatre to, in some ways, parallel the spectrum of contemporary music. Why does musical theatre, which I think should be as broad as theatre in its styles, because it's just theatre that is musical, it shouldn't, as a term, automatically mean it's a stylistic part of the spectrum of theatre. And yet, for so long, I think the art form development has been limited because of that sense of a stylistic supposition that musical theatre is the particular type and that's where immediately you get all the jazz hands sort of prejudices.
0: If we don't know anything about musical theatre and we don't really take the time to listen to or delve into what exists but we make assumptions about what we think it is then musical theatre will always just be that. We need a landscape, we need a spectrum, we need a range of people making it and if we do that then musical theatre will by its very nature get better. I then went on to ask James about how we could move towards a fuller spectrum of musical theatre.
1: Again, there's an element of the definitions sometimes get in the way. People's expectations, I think, of what they're allowed to do within the form sometimes limits them. But as soon as we are seeing artists permitting themselves to experiment in the same way as any theatre maker should when they've got the, the, the empty the page of a rehearsal room and the actors and ready to, to work. We all know it's the technicalities of collaboration with a musical really make it difficult and very expensive.
0: And musicals can be expensive, but they don't have to be. There can be small musicals in the same way that there can be huge and very expensive plays. But I think people assume musicals are expensive because of the fact that musicals are seen as big, brassy, bombastic West End shows. But even those musicals that are expensive, I think there's something to be said for uncoupling the need to recoup that money from art, in some cases, because musical theatre on a large scale deserves to have work made that isn't necessarily obviously commercial, that maybe gets made in subsidised locations, and then finds a way to grow and develop and then emerge for audiences that maybe didn't know that they wanted it when it was being made, but sure wanted it once it had been made. A good example of this in the world of plays is Curious Incident and the Dog in the Nighttime, which was developed by the National Theatre, originally for their smaller space, the Cottesloe, which is a small studio space. And it was made for art's sake, In order to make a piece that was as good artistically as possible by a highly skilled team of collaborators over an extremely long rehearsal period, much longer than would have been sensible if it was a commercial run. But because of that subsidised model and that intent to make good art, an amazing piece of theatre was made that received ecstatic reviews and it was able then to transfer to the West End and to Broadway and to have a hugely successful commercial afterlife, but one that wasn't calibrated from the beginning. Instead, good art was made. And I think Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime could teach us a lot about the way we could develop musicals as well. And as the idea of widening the spectrum of musical theatre was discussed, the idea of widening the type of theatre makers coming into musical theatre, and the freedom of what they can bring to that work was discussed.
1: I think London Road is still the example we'll keep coming back to, when you get the right combination of people bringing something to the table that is a bit different Uh, and I'm I'm in two minds about this because I don't want people to be taking the approach that some artists, I think there's a place for what some artistic directors are doing and pairing an established playwright with an established recording artist or rock group. There is a place for that, but it really bothers me that that is becoming a very dominant approach and it's sort of pushing out the actual committed musical theatre writers uh, who are trying to develop an ongoing career from getting those commissions and working with some of those Uh, producing venues. Many are very good about still working with musical theatre writers but I think it's so important that someone in the creative team actually has musical theatre specific expertise and often that's being brought in almost as an afterthought when people are working with established artists from other areas
0: And I agree with James, because as much as I admire the idea of artists coming from different backgrounds and being able to offer something entirely different to musical theatre, I also dislike it when the environment in which musical theatre is being created is phobic to the idea of musical theatre. I don't think it's a medium that should apologize for itself constantly, because I think there are some absolutely staggering examples of musical theatre that have been written. And I think that those willing to train and write into that tradition, while they should constantly be challenging that tradition's norms in the way that painters do, in the way that sculptors do, in the way that poets do, I just think that there's nothing wrong with being able to look backwards at musical theatre history in order to look forwards. Although there is of course the possibility of people as part of that collaborative team who aren't able to look backwards, but I think they should still respect those who do.
1: So I think it's about the, the right balance between people who are schooled in the form, plus people that will bring something that would be a bit of a wild card to the creative energy. And then it should be as, as varied as what those artists are going to come up with together. Uh, it's, it's this whole balance between the principles of well-crafted musical theatre being misinterpreted as people feeling you can only do a musical well if you do it in a particular way.
0: And I really like the way that James has used the word principles rather than rules because there are principles in musical theatre which are long-established mechanisms of how to make scenes and songs text and music work together but there are no rules you don't have to do a certain way you can look at the way it's been done and you can subvert it if you want to and I think just the use of the word principles rather than rules is essential to making sure looking backwards doesn't lead to something formulaic
1: and feeling hampered and sort of straight into a, a, a particular Uh, narrative form that happens so often and I sometimes wonder it's kind of the nurture versus nature Were some of those writers had they been led in a different way would they have written musicals that were a little bit more original I think the real breakthrough that we've been seeing is that people are more often now writing a musical that is actually in their voice whereas when I started looking at musical theatre uh, in this country, so sort of 2008 onwards when I started work at the Arts Council, so many, I would say the majority of new musicals I was seeing were writing a musical in a musical theatre style because it was a received sense of, oh, I need to write in that style, and they weren't authentically in the voice of the individual writer. And somewhere around about, and I'm sure this is happening in a different place, but just in terms of what I was seeing as the dominant, I was seeing a lot more people writing in a particular regional dialect Or writing with the same sort of distinct individual voice that you would see in new writing in terms of someone saying, I'm going to write a musical, but it's going to be my version of what a musical should be. It's astounding that people thought they should write someone else's version of what a musical should be. But that felt like that was the dominant approach, which is crazy.
0: I like the way James describes the musical theatre style that people write into as the received style um, and as the, you know, the old dominant And I like the fact that he's noticing a shift and that actually that received style is based on other content, not the content that people are using for today's stories. And as Stephen Sondheim says, content should dictate form. It's something that keeps coming up again and again. And we should find the story and then find the way it's told rather than writing simply into a received style.
1: There's there's the craft rules, but for me, the most important thing, and I know not everyone, experiences musicals in the same way but I've always felt drawn to the musicals that get the emotional journey right and it can be any star you like but if it takes me on the emotional journey in the right way then I'm in there and it's remarkable how many will not bring you into that emotional relationship and give you the motivation to want to follow the journey or want to buy into a particular quest narrative And it's those kind of things that are not... It's something like like it's the difference between a law, which is you're not allowed to murder someone, and just suppositions of politeness that we'll all get on better if we we don't hurt someone. There's something about the fact that it's just going to work better that way, and people are going to have a better time if you follow these sort of principles. Um, And that's very... You can still have a full spectrum of content while still not killing anyone or hurting anyone. But it's it's making that distinction, I think, between the level of uh, niceness and etiquette and legally sort of rigid guidelines.
0: What James is speaking about led me on an unusual train of thought towards the fact that depression, bipolar disorder, many noted eating disorders are often caused by inflexible thinking or extremely rigid thinking, which is a human's need for things to happen exactly as they want them to, and then if they don't, it causes an extreme reaction which leads to a lack of control and that leads to various mental mechanisms breaking down. And I think rules in any way are like this. If you have to slavishly follow the rules, it leads to either a kind of extreme rejection of those rules a kind of anarchy where you just ignore everything or a kind of boring slavish following of the rules and i think that happens in musical theater and that leaves it incredibly bipolar because you either end up with these very clone-like received style disney sounding musicals which are very very much following the rules or the other end of the spectrum you get people trying to innovate so much that they throw out every single rule principle style advantage and just get left with this kind of anarchic structureless mess and i think joined up thinking in musical theater is about finding what's in the middle about what happens when we are slightly more flexible and we don't enter into phases of rigid thinking where we think I've got to either follow the rules slavishly or reject the rules totally, but instead you see these as guidelines, as principles, and you find what's in the middle of those two poles.
1: And I think that's responsible for a lot of the prejudice we have in the industry. It's that bizarre thing that people who love theatre often seem to be some of the most prejudiced against musical theatre and it's so crazy but but I think that's where we're at artistically because people have been polarised against musical theatre if it's not for them they decide that they're rigidly against it being for them.
0: And I think people have decided that musical theatre isn't for them especially in Britain because there are very few examples of good new British musical theatre and it's still of a relatively restricted tone and there are still relatively restricted numbers of musicals. And if someone sees three musicals in a row that don't change their expectations of what a musical can be or change their expectations of the quality of new musical theatre, then they're going to be put off musicals for life. And that seems to be something that happens where people just go, I've seen all I need to see, I'm done now. I then went on to ask James why he thought that in Britain noted playwrights rarely wrote the scripts for musical theatre. And I said that in America, very well-respected playwrights such as Tina Landau, Terence McNally, Lisa Cron, Craig Lucas, James Lapine had all written musical theatre as well. And James corrected me by saying that there were noted British playwrights who had written the books for British musicals, such as Lee Hall on Billy Elliot, Dennis Kelly on Matilda, David Gregg on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and Terry Johnson on Mrs Henderson Presents. But it feels to me that these are still exceptions rather than rules, and that writing a musical isn't a regular part of a playwright's life in Britain in the same way it can often be a regular part of many playwrights' lives. In America,
1: I think isn't it largely about the fact that the opportunities weren't there, that there wasn't the, the the commissions weren't happening in that area. I think we're going to see more playwrights getting interested because it feels like musical theatre, dare I say, is becoming cool. Very gradually, it's that whole thing about what's happening within our society, whereby the more alternative visual personal images have become almost the mainstream. Uh, and the geek has become the, the core or whatever, but it sort of feels like there, there's something going on there where the more alternative forms of musical theatre will gradually move more towards the mainstream, or as they almost have in America, it feels. And so I think that sense of it's not going to damage my professional reputation if I write a musical, I wonder if that has sometimes... But I don't think that's the case, actually, because I start to go down that line, because if... Past established playwrights, I don't think, would have felt that they couldn't dabble with a musical and then not go back to writing plays. I think it was just that the commissions weren't really happening to any great quantity in terms of new musicals. Uh, if anything, I think musicals happen because there are people that are so desperate to write them to work in a musical theatre, and maybe they eventually get lucky and persuade an artistic director to give them a space, or, as is more often the case, they self-produce or they, they sort of keep wheeling and dealing until they find a producer to come on board with them and they eventually find a a venue and it's all very self-driven.
0: There seems to be quite a strange contradiction in that people have always thought of musical theatre as this big popular commercial thing but that's also led to a very very thin slice of musical theatre actually being understood by the mainstream and... Musical theatre in general of anything other than that slice has been seen as alternative, a bit strange, and best to be kept in the shadows. And what James is noticing is that that alternative is moving towards the mainstream, and that is capturing the interest of a lot more people, be they playwrights, be they producers, actors. And then on top of that, there are, because of that, more commissions, more producer and venue-led work rather than just artists having to chug on on their own. And finally there are more examples of musicals and British musicals being made and people are seeing those examples of British musicals and they're realising what the form can do and that they can do more. We may still only be seeing shoots of all of these in what has been quite an arid desert for a little while but we are seeing shoots and if we water those shoots and we cultivate that growth then I hope that we can start to see more of a field as the years go on. James also notes that musicals take a lot more time to develop than plays. So some writers may not be willing to shackle themselves to a project that's gonna take many years when in that time they could produce and write many plays.
1: A playwright who might want to be writing several scripts a year or even one a year might be a little bit nervous if someone wants them to sign up for a, a, a six year collaboration and not take on any other commissions. Obviously they they should juggle with other projects,
0: but I wonder if that's an element. James also led me to think that the current generations of playwrights have been living in an ecosystem which not only contains very few good examples of British musicals, but also very few commissions. And generations growing up today are starting to see examples of good different musicals that represent a broader part of the spectrum. And also there are more opportunities. And that will mean that there will be a virtuous circle where there'll be more good work, which will lead to more good work. But this talk of why playwrights don't write musicals led James to wonder if maybe the reason for writing a musical is different to writing a play.
1: But are the motivations behind writing a musical different to the motivations behind writing a play?
0: Having posed this question, I immediately turned it back towards James to see what he thought.
1: I don't know but I just wonder if a playwright is wanting to address a particular issue or wanting to write about a particular situation in terms of uh, a social dynamic or there's a theme, you know it feels like so often the catalyst for a play is a concept or a situation or a trend within society and I I, sometimes those are the the sort of inciting or the catalyst for a a musical, but more often than not, it feels like musicals are adaptations of something that already exists.
0: I've heard this said before, but it's probably worth stating on this podcast that musical theatre might be, in the main, an adaptive genre. And if you think about it, West Side Story, Fun Home, Hamilton, Oklahoma, Yentl, Wicked, Les Miserables, Oliver, Phantom of the Opera, Matilda are all adaptations of either books, plays, or films. So perhaps the layering and the complexity of musical theatre requires that it be adaptations that are made denser and thicker and deeper in their use of music and song than simply trying to write into the void and create something from scratch.
1: It it takes almost more of an adapter, like Christopher Hampton says those lovely things about the kind of humility that you need to be open, he's this amazing world class translator and adapter of other people's work and I think so often A book writer in a musical has some of those similar levels of humility about the degree to which they will collaborate.
0: And this idea of humility is interesting too, not to say that we don't have top-flight playwrights in this country who exhibit humility, but just that because musical theatre is slightly behind in this country, we maybe don't have composers and lyricists who are at the same level as our top-flight playwrights. And as such, we aren't able to find pairings or groupings of equal collaborators in the British musical theatre scene because musical theatre in many ways is slightly behind and perhaps we need equality of status in our groupings of collaborations in order to get humility and this sort of explains why top flight playwrights like Dennis Kelly and Lee Hall worked on Matilda and Billy Elliot and that's because they were collaborating with top flight composer lyricists such as Elton John and Tim Minchin, people who had already proved themselves at the highest level in their field. So maybe it's not so much humility that's required of playwrights, but equality. And in order for musical theatre and plays to gain equality in this country, there needs to be some growth in the musical theatre industry, which we're beginning to see happen, and we need to see more.
1: I'm not suggesting that playwrights have a big ego at all but I just think that often you write a play because you've got something you really want to communicate and musicals have something they want to communicate but I think usually it's more of an emotional territory or a a change within social you think about so many of the great musicals are about social change and it's about wanting people to have more social integration or to accept difference or something and it tends to be a a more soft edge, no, that's the wrong term, but, but there is often a, it's more about the impact that they want the work to have sometimes, I think, that's, that's driving some of the core of that piece.
0: And I think that James might have left me with a key question that I might spend a number of future episodes thinking about, which is, do playwrights and writers of musicals have different starting points? And are their motivations for writing different? Because I think I've always thought that anyone who writes plays can write musicals and should respect musicals. But maybe the reason for writing a play and the reason for writing a musical at their core are different. And maybe the people that can do both, I don't know, maybe they're bi-curious. That's a good
1: term for it, though, I think, because it is that sense of it's not an either or. And so there's no reason why, as a playwright, you couldn't also want to write a musical and have that same impulse. But I wonder if it's a parallel impulse.
0: So maybe writing plays and writing musicals are parallel impulses and maybe they're parallel crafts, but parallel crafts that inform each other hugely and that perhaps we benefit when musicals are written by people with understanding of plays. And maybe even we benefit when plays are written with people with an understanding of musicals. But not everybody needs to do both. And for example, when thinking about the American musical theatre scene, yes, a lot of noted playwrights perhaps write librettos for musicals, but there are some that don't. For example, I can't imagine David Mamet ever writing a musical because that just doesn't seem in any way related to his impulse as a playwright or an artist.
1: And also composers. I think there's a difference between being a classical composer and being a musical theatre composer. And some would cross over perhaps, but only a minority have that real impulse where that's right for their artistic voice, that they want to write musical theatre scores. So
0: perhaps not everyone needs to write musicals or should write musicals. However, musicals should let anyone who wants to make them, make them and we should be interested in broadening the spectrum of British musical theatre that exists. I then went on to posit that there's a linearity intrinsic in the writing of plays, which is that one person moves from a concept through a form and then writes it, Whereas in musical theatre, there's a lot more back and forth. Someone might have an idea and they might write scenes, but then those scenes might be turned into lyrics. There might be sketches of music. Things get passed back and forth, back and forth. So rather than moving in a linear direction, it's a lot messier and a lot more three-dimensional and there's a lot more back and forth and up and down in musicals, which means the skill set, the process, the type of collaboration is different to making plays.
1: And you can't be too controlling of your section, can you? So often I think it is that sense of the the sensibility that people are really up for being a team player within the creative process. And when you see that work, it's, it's a different sensibility. It's like, going back to the, the music examples though with composers, I think it's similar when you think of great singer-songwriters and then someone saying, you can write great songs, why don't you write with a band? And many of them would go, well, that's just not how I work, that's not how I feel I like can best express. Some of them have. Uh, I'm sure there are many examples, but but then some have always just been singer-songwriters. They always just write their own material and they don't work in that more collaborative dynamic. It just isn't their bag.
0: Collaboration isn't for everyone and not all art needs to be collaborative, but musical theatre is definitely collaborative. But in my opinion, that collaboration, if done correctly, leads to something cumulatively, something better, deeper, broader than could have been created by any of those collaborators on their own. My next question for James was why there are some British new writing theatres which specifically say that they don't want submissions of musical theatre. The fact that venues with broadly open submissions policies have said no to musical theatre makes it seem to me that they think they know exactly what musicals are, they've made assumptions about what the word means, and they've dismissed them all. And I think that even those who work in musical theatre and those who have created extremely successful or artistically valuable musicals would say they still don't know exactly what a musical is. And anyone that's good at making musical theatre is constantly challenging the principles and assumptions of what musicals are when they make their work. I asked James what he thought those theatres were doing to the geography of British theatre by closing their doors to musical theatre.
1: I think it comes back to definitions in a large degree. And I know in a previous podcast, It was raised that wouldn't it be nice to get to a point where we don't have to label musical theatre, that there's just theatre. And it feels that if we were in a situation where people would genuinely just go, okay, we have a theatre, we want to programme it, what comes through the door that we really, really want to share with an audience, then yeah, it should be musicals, non-musical theatre, whatever we're going to call it, uh, and they all get a, a fair access and new writing at the Royal Court should be new musicals as much as because that is new writing. Why do we say new writing and we automatically assume it to be a play? It's bizarre that the term new writing automatically has this baggage that we're talking about playwriting of, of a straight play. And that is one of the things we need to address. That in itself, I think, says why we need to talk about not quite quotas, but certainly, well, to a degree quotas, and to a degree about the inequalities that we experience between musical theatre and non-musical theatre
0: theatre. What James is talking about reminds me a little bit of The Monstruists. The Monsterists are a 2005 movement in British theatre whose ideology was about the fact that there were dwindling numbers of main stage plays by young writers who instead were being forced into studio theatres. And in studio theatres, their work seemed to be about very small canvases, quite domestic, and normally with casts of maximum of six. And the idea was, if we don't have younger, more emerging playwrights being able to create work on massive stages, then we aren't going to get generations of playwrights who can do that. We're not going to get people in audiences who see that sort of work, and the whole industry is going to be lesser for it. And the idea of The Monsterists, set up in Britain in 2005, was to make sure that big theatres committed to at least once a year put on a show by a new writer on their main stages. And I think an idea similar to this in musical theatre would pay such huge dividends to the community and the ecosystem at large because writers would get to flex their muscles within this medium at that scale and audiences would get to see examples of that work and there would once again be a virtuous circle by which work begets more work which begets more experience which begets strength in the musical theatre scene in this country and more examples of musical theatre and hence less ability for people to say i know what a musical is and then immediately dismiss that
1: the, the problem i think is that many people say we already have as many musicals as the audiences will want and they're mostly looking to go to see comfy known brand established mostly broadway revivals some british revivals but mostly American. and that market would always be happy for to have an endless cycle of rogers and hammerstein followed by bernstein followed by sondheim etc etc but we know that there's a terrible level of stagnation of art form development there and if we want successive generations of audiences to be as excited about musical theatre as the people that were lucky enough to be the first generation to experience the golden age on Broadway, then we need to be investing in new musicals in the same way that people have largely in the second half of the 20th century started to invest in new writing of plays.
0: And when I hear James use the term stagnation of art form development, it makes me really sad because musical theatre has only just got started in this country in many ways over the last decade. And if we let it get stagnated because we think we've got enough, then we're not gonna see the truly great musicals that I believe this country is able to create. We're
1: increasingly starting to see some new writing Uh, producer-led organisations being inclusive of musical theatre. The new writing end of the musical theatre spectrum has been so underfunded and under-resourced for such a long period of time, people weren't even getting inspired to work in that area because they weren't seeing their kind of work.
0: And I can see how in the 80s and 90s the extreme success of a certain type of British musical made people look at the West End and go, God, look at all those musicals that are happening there. We certainly don't need any more musicals like that. And also, look at the amount of money they're making musical theatre can clearly take care of itself and because of that other types of non-commercial funding tapered and diminished and the idea of development in any other sector of musical theatre went away and it's taken until now for that type of musical theatre to gradually gradually grow back to the place where we can start to see shoots again
1: I think certainly in terms of funding, there was a sense of, well, that's all the musical theater that people need. They can keep going to see their Les Mis and their Phantom of the Opera and they'll be perfectly happy. Uh, But history shows that then there was a bit of a cultural gap. There was a, a starvation of the ongoing inspiration of generations of artists.
0: This got me thinking about an anecdote which I then told to James, about how in 2007, I'd been at a party and had got speaking to an audience member and, in fact, a small benefactor of the Donmar Warehouse, a subsidised theatre in Covent Garden. And it was just at the moment that they had decided to programme Parade, uh, a musical by Jason Robert Brown, for a European premiere. And this particular audience member was furious about the fact that, the Donmar, which is a space that he believed should be doing artistic, high-integrity, subsidised work, was putting on a musical, and I remember him saying, "There are so many musicals in the West End. Why does the Don Mar need to do a musical?" And I tried to describe to him the fact that Parade was very different to the musicals you tend to see in the West End, that it wrangled with really difficult topics, it dealt with the emergence of the KKK, the lynching of a Jewish man, ingrained race relations in Atlanta, and that it was was a really, really complicated piece that broadened the spectrum of what musical theatre could do. But he didn't really want to listen to me and basically just said, subsidised theatres shouldn't be doing musicals. And I always remember that, because I remember thinking... If subsidised theatres in England and Britain don't do musicals, then it's like cutting off an entire part of the spectrum of work. We can't do inaccessible or difficult or weird or strange or complicated musicals. We have to do big, showy, jazz hands musicals. And then when people say they hate musicals, it's born of that circularity of them thinking musicals are a certain thing because musicals are only seen to be a certain thing because we only present musicals that are a certain thing.
1: But doesn't it go back to that word genre, that people were having suppositions about it's going to be a certain type of musical theatre, and they weren't thinking of it as the art form of the, the wider spectrum, that it might have such that you would never say, oh, well, plays are on at the Donmar Warehouse, therefore we don't need plays to go into the West End. I know plays really struggled to go into the West End, and people could conceivably say, well, let's just leave the West End to musicals. But that would be a terrible thing if people said, that's the commercial for art form, and then plays need to be in the subsidised house or something like that. It's unthinkable. And yet it was almost a similar thing being said
0: there. There are plays in subsidised theatres, There are plays in the West End, but people seem to believe that musicals only belong in one of them and that musicals should only be a certain sort of thing. And then when musicals are a certain sort of thing, people berate musicals for being that thing. As James says, musicals deserve the same treatment as plays rather than a different form of treatment. The next thing I wanted to speak to James about was the idea that, in my opinion, a lot of the plays we were starting to see were growing towards musical theatre. And this was to do with the fact that there was increasing trend for interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary theatre that integrated music, movement, video design in with text in order to make something more holistic. And a lot of plays, such as the work of Headlong, who made Earthquakes in London, People, Places and Things, and The Nether, are extremely similar to musical theatre in many ways because of all of the different types of theatrical device that they use, as are works like Warhorse and The Curious Incident of the Dog at the Nighttime. In fact, I often describe The Curious Incident of the Dog and the Nighttime to people as a musical with no singing because it contains so much of the DNA of musical theatre. However, it's interesting to me that when practitioners who have made plays get asked to make musicals, they often, as I've said in a previous episode, get out their telescopes and look at what's happening on Musical Theatre Island, and instead of writing something that is authentic to them as artists, they say something that they think a musical should require them to say. So I asked James why he thought, when writing musicals, people were often less authentic and less passionate about what they were doing, and instead seemed to gravitate towards some idea of what musicals are.
1: The vast majority of artists that I know or that I've read interviews with, there's always that sense of waiting for someone to tap you on the shoulder and go, we know that you're not really as good as other people say you are. Everyone thinks this sort of on some level of their psyche. And so if someone hasn't written musical theater before, I presume that most people will think, oh shit, I really need to go away and read some books or I need to find out what the professionals are doing. And so in that process of feeling like they ought to be learning certain things, I think that's where sometimes some of that authentic impulse in terms of their own original voice sometimes gets lost. Uh, I think it goes back to that thing of ideally, wouldn't it be because it's so collaborative already that... the the craft principles are learnt by Osmosis by having a really great musical theatre director or dramaturge in the creative team so that they can make that, I actually think you'll find that if you do this at this point, this is going to work really well Um, just to try it out, then it's, it's something that is being included within the creative process for that person rather than going off and feeling like it's a bolt on I need to learn musical theater 101 before I can then go back to the drawing board. Uh, If it's integrated into the the creative process, that's going to be best practice, I would have thought.
0: I suggest that maybe writers who fall into these traps have a real intention to learn about musical theatre, but then because there are so many different principles and structures that they don't quite know what to leave and what to take.
1: We all know people get to that stage in a multi-year development process where you can't see the wood for, wood up for the trees, that there have been so many different drafts and you almost get to the point where it's like, do we cut the song or do we not cut the song? And it's purely in terms of time because people just don't know whether it's better with or without anymore. They, they've tried it both ways. And um, yeah, I don't envy people having to make those decisions. It, it's, it's a tough process.
0: I asked James if he thinks the term musical theatre is helpful and something that we should reclaim from the places where people think that it's a dirty word or that it's something that we should try and minimise our use of, and he very insistently suggests that we should reclaim and prize the word musical theatre. And as much as this podcast journey has made me bounce around in my opinion and whether I like the term musical theatre, or we should call it music theatre, or we should just call it theatre, I ultimately believe that musical theatre allows the genre or the medium to have a history and it allows writers to look at what's come before react to it relate to it oppose it but hopefully stand on the shoulders of the giants that have come before and relate to history while at the same time making the future of musical theater but James also worries that if we take away its name we take away its ability to be an art form.
1: But also I think it then sidesteps the idea of it being an art form with continuity. If we don't hold on and reclaim the term musical theatre, it's almost like we're saying, yes, musical theatre up to now has been a particular stylistic genre, and in order to do something new, we have to say it's not even musical theatre. And it bothers me that people do do this time and again, like London Road, as the example often comes up, where initially it wasn't labelled in that way for fear that it would have a negative impact on sales or whatever. And I think it's all the more reason that we stand firm around a particular art form having continuity uh, in terms of being able to continue to to, to take all those rich principles and and, and allow them to to inform work going forward. Uh, I feel very strongly about this and it bothers me that we're living in a a moment in development where still most official dictionary definitions of musical theatre are way out of date they'll still say it has both dance and song as integral elements and I'm like well most of the new musicals that's not the case and yet you then meet people who are working in the industry and will still say oh but it's got no dance in it so do you consider it to be a musical because that's what the dictionary told them
0: And I don't think we should be looking in a dictionary to determine what musical theatre is but I also think our modern definitions of musical theatre are constantly being challenged and subverted by examples of work and that's as it should be. I think the history of musical theatre has to be in dialogue with the present and also in dialogue with other types of work because something else that concerns me is people only making new musical theatre and ignoring the rest of the theatrical canon of ignoring plays and other works of art. Sometimes people say to me, oh, wouldn't it be great if there were a British national theatre of musicals? And I think a theatre that only did musicals would, for me, be just as bad as a theatre that never did musicals. I think it's important that plays and musicals are in dialogue with one another, that people can discuss plays and musicals in the same sentences, even if their reasons for existing are subtly different or if their processes are parallel. I think we shouldn't put musical theatre in a bubble and surround it with a boundary. And when I said this... James agreed.
1: But we wouldn't want to be separatists. I I completely agree that we don't want bubbles. We don't want them to be rival camps either, that they should be cross-fertilising each other continually and they're part of the same uh, industry or sector, uh, but subgroups perhaps or, or overlapping communities. And
0: for me, what's in the middle... Is always exciting, which is why I made this podcast about the intersection between music and theatre, because I think that what is on the overlap is exciting to me. So rather than just what's at the extreme end of plays or the extreme end of musicals, I'm interested in the way that those can be in dialogue with one another. And what's in the middle is what's really interesting me at the moment. Our conversation winds back to the idea that people's expectations of what musicals are have limited them from doing intellectual and deeply experimental work within the genre of musical theatre.
1: It gets back to that sense of where some sections of the infrastructure have, because of their presuppositions, limited the kind of new musicals they've commissioned or writers have assumed certain things about what audiences will want to see. And
0: although we have to sell shows to audiences, I think it's a dangerous precedent to always have to think what audiences want to see when making art, because sometimes we should just tell a story. Sometimes we just have to build it and let people come, because if we always do the reverse of that, then there's going to be a stifling of what creativity means. There are
1: people out there that are, I know, currently writing new British musicals that are experimental, a bit like London Road or more experimental, but there are very, very few compared to the writers that are writing in something closer to the received form of what they think a musical theatre generally is.
0: I really like James's use of the received form because the received form seems to be a good way of describing the musical theater sound or the musical theater style and while the received form is fine it's also something that we need to dispute every so often
1: and i think in the next 10 20 years we're going to see hopefully a far greater number of the people wanting to work in this art form that are wanting to do it on their terms stylistically uh, and being a lot more experimental and messy um, in terms of the methodology of the theatrical world. And I
0: think the idea of messing up established norms are interesting because it requires we know something about the established norms, but that we also don't take those norms too rigidly and that we're able to mess them up. And if you look at something like science, the way in which paradigm shifts occur in science is by people playing with established laws until they begin to break. And once those laws break, then new laws are formed and paradigm shifts occur. And I think the same can be true of musical theatre and theatre in general. But again, in order for them to break, we need to know what those forms are. So people who say they want to reinvent musicals without knowing anything about musicals should stop what they're doing and pick up some textbooks. But
1: also, when looking over their shoulder at the greats, I'm looking forward to, we're kind of moving into that area now where the the sort of historical pieces are enough of an established canon that people can mess them up a bit. And that's so exciting, and it opens up huge new possibilities to do things really experimental with those wonderfully initially straight. Like, I'm really looking forward to when people are able to get their hands on Leonard and Lowe musicals and Rodgers and Hammerstein and really mess them up and deconstruct them because that's when you can have really experimental stuff like why can't we have a rock band do the score of My Fair Lady and why can't people fragment and, and put it in different places. People start to do this but usually they're not allowed to because it's that commercial thing of the properties are still so valuable that the licensing houses won't let people mess with them too much I think in most cases. But, you know, we look at what happens with Shakespeare and people say, you know, obviously many great 20th century musicals don't have the versatility that Shakespeare has, but some have the potential to to go in interesting directions.
0: If people learn to mess up what's come before, we might find new and interesting ways of creating the future of new musical theatre.
1: And that's probably the midway step to people doing that and then going, well, let's do an original musical that's similarly fragmentary and, and deconstructed and has a more postmodern kind of sensibility. And I think we're all, you know, we were all ready for that decades ago, but it's more that people haven't felt that partly I guess because again the financial structure has felt like it's a bit too dangerous.
0: I say to James that it feels that finally Britain has a community and a spectrum of new musical theatre creatives who are interested in looking at the norms but also challenging them. And I say that it's exciting that James and MTN are able to look at the overview and be able to join the dots of that community. Yeah, well, that's
1: a key thing. Musical Theatre Network, the organisation I'm working for, is all about joining the dots. And that's something that for a long time was missing. I think in more recent years, it's happened a lot more. The people collaborating more and being a bit more generous to the work that they have in development. They're not working in silos where until press night they want to be very guarded about what the new musical is that they're developing people are realizing that the more they collaborate and get other co-producers on board during the development process it's a win-win for everyone
0: so i think we've established that new musical theater in britain is undergoing a renaissance but it's a slow one and we've still got a long way to go i asked james where he thinks british musical theater might be In 10 years? I mean,
1: I'm not sure if it's a prediction, but it's a hope certainly that in a decade's time we will be seeing musical theatre being more uh, across the board, that we'll see a larger number of venues who have their doors open to musical theatre just as part of the spectrum of their programme and not in the way it is currently, where often it's a sense of we'll programme plays and then we'll programme musical theatre in a very different way. I think there's a cultural shift going on that will might take more than a decade but the hope is that it will be more prevalent throughout the wider sector and I think that's not just in terms of actual concrete infrastructure like buildings, the, the number of theatres that program musical theatre, but I think it's also talking in terms of the artistic spectrum that we'll see more musical theatre-like work happening in different sorts of art spaces and stylistic areas. Uh, I think that's already starting to happen uh, and the hope is that, yeah, we'll, we'll have there'll be more hybrid collaborative sort of things going on
0: and, and that will be great. So how to summarise this episode's discussion? Firstly... There does seem to be a renaissance in new British musical theatre, but it's a slow one, and we need to take care to do the right things to ensure that it flourishes. For the first time in a while, we're observing a greater number of artists working in musical theatre, and they're working across a broader spectrum of tones and styles. This should be encouraged, as should the joined-up idea of community, the idea of debate, discussion, the challenging of norms and principles, to allow us both to acknowledge the past of musical theatre, and to innovate, in the future secondly the more good examples there are of good and interesting British musical theatre that doesn't necessarily fit into the slim mould of 80s West End commercial musicals and the more commissions and opportunities from theatres and producers the more work will be made and this will lead to a virtuous circle which will lead to more good examples of the work more opportunities and more good work being made so the existing dots that are forming a community will grow and form a bigger community and will form work that is more emblematic of the qualities and tone and style that Britain has in its theatre and can bring to its musical theatre. Thirdly, the while plays and musicals are potentially born of parallel rather than identical impulses, that they're part of the same sector of art and should always be in the same debate rather than trapped in their own bubbles. I believe that we should try and encourage writers who can do both to try and do both. And we should look for collaborations that are full of respect humility, and equality. Fourthly, that the Arts Council and non-commercial sectors have to be committed to helping drive change in musical theatre. We have to ensure that new musicals are given stages and money and the ability to grow and strengthen. There need to be examples of musicals for there to be more musicals. Finally, musical theatre, I think, deserves to be named and that name shouldn't be something we're ashamed of in Britain. It makes us know that it's a legitimate art form with a history, but also something that can evolve and should be challenged and shifted with every new show. Musical theatre in Britain isn't just a handful of writers and shows from the 80s. Musicals can be a lot of things, and they don't have to be created in a received voice that we've grown to expect. The term can be much more flexible in its use to describe the coming together of text, story, music, and song. I'm going to close today's episode with a quotation from American composer Richard Rodgers, writer of shows including Oklahoma and The Sound of Music. I would like, if I can, to broaden the possibilities of the musical theatre. I think there's a better Oklahoma someplace, a better West Side Story, and I'd like to be mixed up in it. And if Richard Rodgers, someone ingrained in the history of American musical theatre, can still believe that there's more that there are more possibilities, that musical theatre could be better and different, then why can't we all? Discord is hosted and produced by me, Adam Lenson. Our co-producer is Emma Clauber. Editorial assistance is from Daisy Chute, Michael Connolly, Jonathan Lenson, Sarah Middleton, and Oliver Soans. Our incidental music is by Elke Legrond, and our theme music is by Luke Bateman.